Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land-use warriors, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road. This episode of Conversations with Big Rich is brought to you by the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. The mission of the Hall of Fame is to educate and inspire present and future generations of the off-road community by celebrating the achievements of those who came before. We invite you to help fulfill the mission of the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. Join, partner, or donate today. Legends live at ormhoff.org. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have none other than the infamous or famous <laughs> Dell Albright. Dell <laughs> has worked um, tirelessly for especially the Rubicon, but also land use in general um, as an ambassador for Blue Ribbon Coalition, and he started the Friends of the Rubicon or was one of the founders of the Friends of the Rubicon, but we'll get into all that with Dell. Dell? Thank you for uh, coming on board and uh, agreeing to have a conversation with us today. You bet, Rich. It's uh, it's nice to be in touch again. Yeah, it I'm, is. I'm I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Excellent. So I'm going to start with the question I start with everybody is, where were you born and raised? Well, <laughs> uh, I was born in Oregon, but my dad uh, only stayed there a couple of years because he... Uh, Found a job in L.A., so we moved to Southern California when I was just a young kid, almost a baby still. But mostly Southern California is my, you know, what I call home. We spent several years in L.A. Um, Dad was a machinist. And in those days, <laughs> which is a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> With a stone and chisels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was making square wheels, you know, but yeah. So he had no trouble finding work and he was uh, quite talented. So he had a lot of job offers. We lasted six or seven years there in L.A. And then we moved to San Diego. So most of my childhood best memories or the San Diego area, a place called El Cajon. Okay. Mm-hmm. Went to school there and, you know, all my best buddies. And that was my upbringing. And uh, as you know, you know, Southern California is full of great four-wheeling and desert places to go exploring. So that's a lot of what we did. Um, my dad, pretty much two to three weekends a month would grab me and later my little brother and sister and take us out to the desert, uh, to the ocean, to the mountains. Uh, We fished a lot. We had boats. And uh, that was my upbringing was being outdoors with my dad and mom. It was just, I was really fortunate. My my current wife, (laughs) Stacy, says, I'm like, leave it to Beaver. (laughs) If, If you remember that TV show, you know, the 
perfect family, the good life, the good upbringing, um, didn't have alcoholic parents, uh, you know, didn't have a lot of money, but <clears throat> made the best of every nickel and spent our time outdoors. And that's really what set my goal in life was to be that kind of an outdoors person um, and enjoy that freedom that was driven into me. Um, maybe not on purpose as much as I, I, I think now, but my parents would emphasize how lucky we were that we lived someplace where we could go play in the desert and go fishing in the ocean, not be hampered by some other, you know, different country kind of rules. We had freedom. Right. And that just, that stuck in me. Like you can't, you can't imagine. I mean, I, well, you do know I live for it every day. <laughs> right. Exactly. So in those early years, the, the being outdoors um, with your parents, the hunting, the fishing, the exploring, driving around, what were, what were the mode of transportation? What kind of vehicle did you guys run around in? You know, when you asked me to do this podcast, you know, I, I mentioned that old news is good news. And you, you know, I'm kind of an old guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> I started, my dad and I, he built that I held the light and, and tried to find the right tool. But we built a, a buggy, um, a brush buggy. Okay. Uh, out of a 52 Studebaker. <laughs> nice. In those days, the uh, Armstrong True Track was kind of the tire that people had uh, in desert rigs. <clears throat> but in the back, Dad found some hay baler tires, implement tires. And they're nice and wide, kind of a balloon-looking thing. But to get them to fit on this Studebaker frame, he had to weld two rims together. And oh. We didn't. Commercially, you just couldn't buy a wide enough rim. So he welded two rims together to make a wide tire for this balloon <laughs> that was on the back. Nice. And it's pushed by a you know, big old V8 water pumper. Uh, he put a four-speed tranny in it, put a piece of plywood behind the driver passenger seat on the floor. That's where I stood <laughs> and helped him. <laughs> And held on to the roll bar doing 50 miles an hour across, you know, Glamis and Imperial Sand Dunes and Ocotillo Wells, places like that. We, you know, the heck of it is, Rich, <clears throat> in those days, and I'm talking 60s, 60, 62, 63, 64, mid-60s. Right. We could unload the buggy. He, he flat-toed it. We could unhook. Not I'm not sure where we were, you know, just someplace like Ocotillo or out there in the middle of nowhere and point it east or south, whatever. And we would stop when we got to the Colorado River. There was no wilderness areas. There were no fences. There were no boundaries like we have today. I mean, I grew up exploring that desert without restrictions and limitations yeah it's all changed now but yeah you mentioned uh you mentioned the imperial sand dunes that area it was amazing how immense it was and now 
it's all shut down except for the little bit of Glamis area. And, you know, it's, it's really, really is a shame. Yeah. Yeah. That, and see that sort of, I mean, my dad wasn't a, you know, like politically oriented. Well, he had opinions. He'd read the newspaper, the breakfast table every morning and, you know, quack and holler about some politician doing this or that. And by God, if it was in the newspaper, it had to be true. Well, back then (laughs) it was more likely to be true. (laughs) (laughs) More likely. Yeah. But uh, we get out of the desert and all that would, of course, go away. Just like today, you know, you kind of forget your troubles. Get on that 52 Studebaker. We call it the lobster because the way it set, it had two big headlights sitting off each side of the radiator. And it looked like some kind of a lamb-loving lobster. That's what we called it. <laughs> I kept it for years. But we would forget all the politics, all the stuff, and then just drive. And Glamis, my dad took me there for the first time, I want to say 62 or 3. And uh, there was some sign stuck on a piece of, like, laugh, like a steak. It said, Competition Hill, this way. And I said, what's that, Dad? And he said, eh. he said we're not going to go there. There'll be 50, maybe 100 people there. It's just too busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now, now it's 15,000. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. We did all those all those areas, um, hunted out there in the desert. So that, that upbringing, and my mom was uh, the other side of the equation. Um, she was a people person. Mom was like the family, um, what matriarch? She was the queen. Uh, we'd have family picnics, three hundred people. Wow! And my mother was one of the central focus points for wisdom and help. And how do I do this? And you know, who was who in the family zoo? She knew everything, so she was the people person, and she basically gave me my what i consider my people skills and leadership you know be nice be firm talk to people you know like you would want to be spoken to and be nice and but you know don't let your opinion slide you know let people know what you need and want what you think and speak up so you know between the outdoor upbringing and my mom you know teaching me how to be facilitative and you know work with people i think that launched my whole it did it launched my whole life okay when when you were in school um did you did you play sports at all or were you spent more time out outdoors (laughs) i was mostly outdoors but the one all my uncles my mom had six brothers wow yeah world war ii kind of Navy veterans and uh, construction workers. And I grew up loving my uncles and learning from them. But they were all crippled up. They were wounded, you know. Right. And it was from football in school. <laughs> and I said to myself, self, <laughs> you know, I li- I, I'm a musician too. So, you know, I kind of like my fingers and, you know, like to be able to play the guitar, the piano, whatever. And I looked at my uncles and they were they were just beat up. And uh, so I decided not to do sports in high school. I tried wrestling because uh, 
I studied Kung Fu and some of Jiu-Jitsu and things like that. And so I tried wrestling. And, you know, my hair was not long at all, but it, you know, it was down to my neck or something. Anyway, the coach said, if you're going to wrestle, you got to cut your hair. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I, nope, not cutting my hair. So anyway, I got in a marching band. <laughs> I grew go. up high school. I was in the, you know, the dance band, the marching band, the jazz band. I, music became my life. Uh, music and girls, <laughs> but like I say, leave it to Beaver. I didn't smoke cigarettes. I didn't drink a beer. I didn't, you know, sneak into the bathroom. I didn't do any of that stuff. I was, I was lame. <laughs> so, what was? Uh, did you? Did you? Well, talking about being in the bands, what? What was your? What was your favorite interest instrument? Or did you play a number or just one? Or <laughs> well. When I was uh, seven years old, um, a lot of my family members played musical instruments, harmonica, uh, whatever, um, piano. My mom always had a piano in our houses, wherever we lived. <clears throat> but I wanted something I could uh, take with me. So anyway, we, she got me on the accordion. That's how I started. Okay. I took accordion lessons. I fell in love with my accordion teacher, you know, about nine or 10 years old. Her name was Mrs. Peggy Parks. I remember to this day falling crush head over heels. So I practiced. I wanted to look good for her. And I learned the accordion. And the right hand on the accordion is the same as the right hand on the piano. So I started, you know, my mom started teaching me a little bit of piano. And that was my main instrument for 40 years. Wow. I played in honky-tonks. Uh, I played in restaurants, uh, bars, uh, belly dancing studio. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've done a lot of uh, barroom piano work. Um, but then, you know, I started more jeeping and going out in the world of off-road i couldn't take a piano when the accordion was kind of out of date <laughs> uh, the blue barrel polka is probably not going to go over well at a koh campfire probably so, well i don't know late <laughs> enough it might <laughs> <laughs> so then i well, yeah good point so then i started playing the guitar and uh i'm a campfire guitarist so i take it on a lot of trips Overlanding adventures, Death Valley trips. I'll take the guitar and break it out and start playing a few songs and getting people singing. And so that is now my favorite is the guitar. Excellent. Excellent. So yeah. the, as a, a kid in San Diego, and that's, I'm assuming that's where you went to high school. And cause you said you were in, in uh, dance and dance band and, and marching band, that kind of thing. Um, did you, you weren't, you weren't playing the squeeze box or the accordion in band, were you? No, I was a drummer. Drummer. Okay. Uh, yeah. I did snare drum in the marching band, kind of led the drum team. And then, uh, in the dance band, uh, I picked up an electric it was before electric pianos. It was actually kind of an organ, but it's in a wooden a framework, kind of like a small piano. Okay. Anyways, 
same idea as an electric piano. So I picked one of those up to play in my little rock band, dance band. Uh, we were called the Barons. Nice. And, uh, you know, really modern tunes like, uh, you know, Louie Louie and uh, <laughs> stuff from the 60s. Which was modern but, then. Yeah. The heck of it is, uh, by the time I turned 16, I needed a car to transport my musical instruments to the band practice and to school, whatever, right? Right. So my mom and dad had this 58 ranch wagon, a Ford station wagon, T-Bird engine, and they were going to get traded in on something else. And I'd saved up, I don't know, let's say 300 bucks. And so I offered my dad 300 bucks for this car. He said, all right, you can have it. You know, just don't get in trouble and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> to transport my musical instruments, you know, I needed some padding in the back of this 58 station wagon, right? Yeah, that's so, what it was for. Yeah, yeah. so I got, this <laughs> mat- I got this mattress that fit in the back of the wagon for transporting my musical instruments. <laughs> How convenient. Mom, <laughs> Did you tint Mom the windows didn't. too? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I actually had some Velcro curtains for a while, but mom didn't buy that uh, musical instrument routine. She kept a pretty close eye on me. <laughs> but yeah, that, music was everything to me in those days. In fact, when I graduated out of high school in El Cajon, I started to going to uh, uh what do you call it? Clem- uh, community college. Okay. Yeah, I still hadn't still hadn't found my way, so I signed up for. <laughs> I was taking music and boxing and community college, and pretty soon I realized I was spinning in circles, wasting my time. What the heck am I doing? And uh, the the one thing I was I know I've listened to your podcast. You talk about giving back. I actually was teaching kids part-time, you know, young kids, seven, eight, nine, ten, accordion on the side. Okay. I'd drive around town, go to the house, give them a 30-minute lesson, and make a few bucks. And so I was passing on music to the younger kids. So that was the one good thing I was doing. But the rest of the time, I was either boxing, you know, chasing girls or making music. And anyway, that... I had a threshold and uh, all my uncles had been in the war, served in the military, and my dad was in World War II. So I joined the Army, gave up all that college stuff and said, you know what? It's time to join the Army and go do something with myself. So I've been a Boy Scout, you know, a Cub Scout, all that stuff. So come to think of it Stacy reminded me that I'd been in uniform most of my life right one form or another okay yep how far yeah. did you get in in scouting uh I was what's the one right under eagle life uh, life? Life? Yeah. life I made it to life wow so um, close I know I I made order of the arrow. I did all that stuff. In fact, I still have my uniform, Rich. Wow. I still have my merit badges. <laughs> I think my parents have mine. I hope yeah, they well, do. My mom kept everything. That's awesome. I won't say it fits. <laughs> 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 yeah. Oh my, the order of the arrow. I, I've got all that stuff in a box. So it's pretty cool. 
but yeah, so, you know, I just, the, the army called and I joined. And that was in the height of Vietnam. Yes, sir. I got in and I basically volunteered to go to Vietnam. I volunteered. I joined the army and volunteered for Vietnam. I, I was ready to do my part. And uh, I believed in those days, you know, the longer you get away from a war like that, the more you realize, you know, maybe you didn't make the best decision. But for me, it was. And I wanted to go. So, but the funny thing is, you're like this. My uncle on my dad's side was a, uh, like a PG&E, you know, Pacific Power and Light, telephone lineman repairman. He climbed those telephone poles and fix stuff up there before they had, you know, good cherry pickers and stuff. Right. And I admired that. And he told me stories of Korea when he was up in the telephone pole doing something with a couple of bodyguards down below getting shot at by some, you know, bad guy. And I'm thinking, wow, hanging up there in a telephone pole, maybe with a pistol and some guy shooting at you. Gee, that's TV stuff. I want some of that. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I told the Army when I joined, I said, I want to be a telephone lineman repairman. Yes, sir. No problem. Yeah, you've got a high school you know, diploma. you got a little college, <laughs> boxing and music. Yeah, we'll get you fixed up. <laughs> you know how this story goes, right? Yeah, <laughs> <I> infantry. Mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they got, once they got my signature, I never saw a telephone pole the rest of my career. <laughs> They immediately decided I'd make a, a good infantryman. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. And they also, you know, what they did pick up on was those people skills. I told you that my mom helped me kind of get a feel for and get a handle on. You know, the Army has, they, they know when they see somebody that has, you know, some kind of leadership potential. So that's the first thing they did was start testing me for leadership positions you know, went from there and where did you where did you end up rank wise and how many years did you did you serve i did six years of active duty okay and then eight years in the national guard um and in the six years of active duty like i say they immediately sent me to grunt school infantry then they sent me to a leadership school and of course i I kicked ass. I just, I was in good shape. I was fairly smart for, for a kid, you know, 18, 19, I guess. And uh, they ended up sending me to officer candidate school. OCS. OCS. Yeah. Six months of learning to be an officer. So I graduated second lieutenant, volunteered to go to Vietnam. They said, not yet. We want to train you some more. And uh, I kept taking these tests and these batteries of exams and they kept finding more things to do with me. In those days, they were looking for hot shots. They wanted heroes. They wanted, you know, officers who could lead in pretty much any circumstance. They uh, ended up, I went to, uh, I was a parachutist, airborne. Uh, I ended up going to ranger school. I was a ranger. I ended up Green Beret school. I uh, I became a frogman. I did everything combat that the United States Army had to offer in those days. I was in, somebody told me in the Department of Defense, it was like the top 2% of 
of anybody that served in the military in my day and age as far as training. Wow. You know, Airborne Ranger, Green Beret, Frogman, Paratrooper, jump. I used to jump out of airplanes with scuba tanks on. Nothing so, like having an anchor. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, I've been shot at in three countries. Wow. Uh, I served a year and a half in South America, Central America, um, a year in Vietnam. And I've lived in 16 states, courtesy of Uncle Sam, usually. Uh, and like I say, the, the combat side of me, uh, it became my life. I don't want to sound bloodthirsty or anything like that. I'm not stupid. I, I didn't want to, I didn't have a death wish, but I had a really strong family. Everybody was kind of religious in, in my family, you know, Pentecostal, uh, Baptist. I had just about everything you think of. And uh, they would set, they set up a prayer circle when I was overseas, everybody praying for me, you know, and I just kind of knew that I wasn't going to get wasted over in some stupid jungle, either in South America or Vietnam. I just had a feeling that I was going to come home. And so I did all kinds of stuff that, you know, not everybody would do. Ended up with a chest full of medals and uh, no really serious wounds and yeah, made it home. So it was for me, it was like I say, those six years, uh, I speak three languages, courtesy of Uncle Sam. I can order a beer and talk to a girl in about five languages, but the, that, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I ended up a major when I left the National Guard. I was a major. I don't regret any of my army stuff. That's one of the things that the Rubicon people, when I started the Friends of Rubicon, this is too military. And I'm thinking, it probably is. I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and and there's a, a certain degree of that comes, you know, you started early, you know, with the early uniforms and scouting. You know, there's there's a hierarchy in scouts that yeah. unless you've been through it, you really don't understand. But, you know, you, you start off like that, you know, like, like a private and you work your way up. Yeah. Yeah. I did the, when, you know, Cub Scout uniform, Boy Scout uniform, uh, marching band uniform, and then of course the army. And even when I started doing my land use career, well, when I, when I, when I was in the National Guard, I was also working for the fire department Okay, here in California, Cal Fire, they call it, uh, CDF back in the day. When I came home from Vietnam, uh, 1971, anyway, I went to school. And the reason uh, I decided to go back to college in Vietnam, I'm sitting on this rice paddy dike with my buddy who was breaking me in because he was going home to the job I had there in the combat operations. And we're sitting on this rice paddy dike, mud. We have a poncho wrapped between the two of us. And the way you would sleep sometimes is you just sit side by side, have your cigarette, whatever, cup of coffee, and then just lay down away from each other, but butt to butt with one poncho covering you up while you grabbed a few hours of sleep to keep the rain off. So we're having one of those conversations. What are you going to do when you get home? His name was Dave. 
said, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get into forestry and uh, become a logger. I said, wow, that sounds cool. All right. I like that idea. Anyway, short of the story is he went home, started school up in uh, Humboldt, Eureka, Northern California. Uh, A year later, I did the same thing. I got out of the Army and met him up there in Humboldt. Um, got a place to live, and I started studying forestry. So we both went to college together after being in Vietnam together, and we both ended up in logging, which led me to the forestry and fire department because it was combined. It was the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. Right. So I went to work for them in the logging side of it, and a few years of that, I went to the fire side. Moved over and started fighting fire. Anyway, I've been in uniform forever. I don't, I don't know what it's like not to be in uniform. You've seen me in my starch shirts to this day, you know. Yep. <laughs> That's just, it's ingrained. So at what point did you decide to, I know that, you know, growing up with the Studebaker, the modified Studebaker, the lobster, the, did you, where, at what point did you go, okay, I'm, I'm going to start wheeling. I mean, was it during the, the, the forest service time or, you know, I took the lobster, uh, with me when I came home from Vietnam, I went and got it at my dad's house in San Diego, took it up to Eureka. And, uh, that's a town on the coast of California. Right. So I was living where you could drive on the beach in those days so we'd jump in the lobster, I'd drag it down to the beach. Uh, South Spit was one of the, you know, big long spits of ocean sand. And it's kind of, it's wet sand and, you know, it's just great <laughs> driving sand. And I'd crank that baby out V8 up and do 50, 60 miles an hour down the beach, which doesn't sound like a big deal, except in those days, the beach was loaded with driftwood burl, big stumps, uh, root wads. So I was actually weaving in and out of an obstacle course in this buggy, cruising up and down the beach. And I fell in love. I, I just, I, I knew I wanted to be off pavement. I didn't care where. I started out, I got a couple of motorcycles, I I had street bikes, I had dirt bikes, 305 Scrambler in those days, no suspension. Um, So I just started, anything that would get me off the pavement, I started doing. I didn't get my first, my first Jeep. I had a four, I had three four wheel drive trucks because we did a lot of hunting. So we had four wheel drive trucks, you know, short beds and step sides. Right. Um, and pretty much, you know, the only thing I'd do is lift them a little, put some good tires on and a winch and, uh, you know, go hunting and go four-wheeling. Well, then I, when I was doing my Cal Fire career, they moved me from around, you know, kind of go around the state. If you want to move, you know, if you want to promote, you have to move, basically. So I Pumping around, and I ran into guys that were jeeping and four wheeling these Toyotas and big, r- nice off road rigs that are pretty common today, but they were just starting to blossom in in those days. 
and I had to have one. So I started getting into Jeeps and been broke ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Just empty every pocket. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, it was, I tell you what though, the, uh, you know, that, that whole lifestyle, uh, especially then the, the camaraderie, I mean, it's, it's still there. It's always going to be there. Campfire camaraderie and whatever you're doing, if you're outdoors around a campfire, it's always good. But those first folks that I met in those days, they were so helpful, uh, so willing to share. You know, this is before the pirate days when, you know, you post up a silly question and you get beat up or you post up a reasonable question and you get stupid answers. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, you know, pirate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but these guys were so helpful. Cal four wheel. Uh, the people were just amazing and it, it hooked me. So, you know, getting into clubs and things like that. And I think I had I've had five Jeeps now and the wife still has four and I only have one. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that that whole um, the army led me to that, you know, fire service. I just blended right in with the chain of command. I was like, "What's the big deal? Wear a uniform? Yeah, no problem." <laughs> yeah, you don't have to choose in the morning then. That's right. That's right. It made it simple, and I got to tell you, you know, simple is good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh well. Yeah, I had. Uh, I had a lot of opportunities in those days to, when Cal Fire picked me up, CDF at the time, uh, the, again, they, you know, the tests and the interviews. And so they decided I had some potential and they put me through this two year intern program where I rotated around like six different government agencies uh, at the state's expense learning how the Department of Parks and Recreation, Department of Energy, uh, Fish and Game, yada, yada. I got to spend like six months with each of these departments with the bigwigs, you know, sitting in the office of the main man in charge, learning how they run their organization and what it's all about. Because Cal Fire wanted to turn me into a big chief someday. <laughs> and at the same time, they paid for my master's degree. Excellent. So I got a master's degree doing this rotation. And the cool thing, this this is a good, if we have time, I'll tell you this story. Absolutely. We have, oh, we have plenty of time. Okay. Well, I got to fishing game. They have a, a, a team of people that are just like doctors and wildlife. What am I trying to Veterinarians. Right. And their job is to, you know, monitor wildlife, their health, check on the deer herds, whatever. Well, California has a Thule elk problem. These indigenous elk, they're smaller than like the Roosevelt's and the big Rocky Mountain guys, but they're in California and they live in the Owens Valley, uh, 395, kind of high desert. Anyway, they destroy crops like you wouldn't. They'll come in and just eat a farmer's livelihood overnight. So fishing game was going to move some of these elk. And I heard about it. I said, what are you talking about moving elk? Oh, yeah. Come on along. We'll set you up. We all pack up in these suburbans and head for this town called Bishop. Anyway, they 
teach me how to be a what's called a coyote, where you stand out in the brush in the sagebrush and hide until the elk are charging you. Then you stand up and wave this thing and try to scare them and turn them towards a funnel trap. We built these funnel traps so they'd come in a short neck and have room when they got inside these tall walls and we could capture them. So I got to be a coyote. <laughs> this herd of elk charging at me and I thought, the army paid me to get shot at. I'm doing this. <laughs> you know, this is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out, you know, they knew the elk would turn and, you know, once you turn them and, uh, you know, you regain your composure and throw your underwear away, whatever. <laughs> it became pretty a pretty good job, right? So we get him into this funnel trap. Not remember, I'm a fireman, young kid. I'm just I'm my eyeballs are big. I'm up on the wall looking down, and one of the vets jumps in the herd. You know, they've kind of settled down. They're just kind of, you know, pacing around in this enclosure. He jumps down there because there's an elk down a big old bull like he's dead right and i'm watching this thinking you gotta be kidding me if that elk wakes up or whatever he's gonna tear you a new one well the elk was dying he'd had a some i'm not i don't remember a seizure heart attack something happened and he quit breathing down he went so this guy jumps in and he's he's got this like a little you know CPR kind of thing you put over the mouth. He's trying to give this elk some oxygen. He looks up and he said, "Get your butt down here, Albright." I'm thinking, "Yeah, right. Yeah." yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I, I buckled him, buckle up, Buttercup. I jump in. He says, "Get a hold of his hind leg and you pump it opposite of when I." Give him air, you know, just like CPR, push on the chest, breathe in the mouth. I'm pumping this bull elk's leg in and out, you know, as hard as I could when on signal. And he's shooting oxygen into this thing. All of a sudden, I see the chest of this bull starting to work on its own. And I looked up at the, the doc that was doing it. I said, is this the time to get out? He says, as fast as you can. (laughs) (laughs) We we jumped up, dove for the wall, started crawling up, and that elk got up and started whipping ass. He was mad, you know, in shock, but he was alive. I uh, brought a bull back from death. (laughs) (laughs) I wish, you know, there's there's times that I'm so glad that we didn't grow up with social media or, you know, video cameras, you know, phones, you know, like they do now where everything, everything in life is recorded because there's things I did. I wouldn't have wanted to get out there, but boy, I sure would have loved to have seen that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had a helicopter guy, contract pilot for fishing game, a really nice guy. Unfortunately, about 10 years after this, one trip and he crashed into a wall and died doing the same thing. But when I was with him, uh, he'd take me up and, uh, they wouldn't let me shoot something about liability, I guess, but they had a dart gun and they would fly the helicopter. Let's say a bull got rogue and didn't get in the funnel trap and they still wanted to get him. They'd fly the helicopter with a shooter sticking out of the, you know, 
out of the door, strapped in, like you see in the movies these days, with this dart rifle, <clears throat> shoot a bull on the run while flying, you know, puts him down. Usually, and it, it's not instantaneous, it's not, so it's not like they just fall over and hurt themselves. They go, you know, a little bit, slow down, stop, and just sort of lay down. Right. Very humane. Then we'd all jump out, put him in a net on a long line, and pick him up with a helicopter and move him over and put him someplace else. <laughs> yeah. It was, i tell you what, I mean, like I say, I've I, been all over the world and had all kinds of experiences and yeah seeing that was pretty impressive so that's the kind of stuff i learned in my early days of cal fire so so it's reminded me of the story is reminding me of mutual of omaha's wild kingdom and having you know that guy jim the guy that used to run around out there in the bush with barefooted chasing the animals yep yep yeah, <laughs> but you had boots on, like right? It. What's that? You had boots on. Oh yeah, okay. oh yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, was, it was it was truly. Uh, I thought I was in hog heaven, Rich. I mean, you know, I, I thought I was just going to be a fireman and go out there and pull hose, chase fire, get dirty, thirsty, and hungry. And they had me, you know, doing things like that. I actually, when I went to the Energy Commission in California. One of the commissioners, his name was Rusty Schweikert, and he was an astronaut. Oh. Apollo, uh, Apollo thirteen, I think. One of them. Anyway, the 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 the, the significance of this story is that's who I got assigned to, and I looked at Mister Schweikert, and I said, "I know you." He said, "Well, I'm the astronaut, you know." Yeah, I said, "No." I know you more than that. It was my green. It was my green beret, eighteen, in Panama, that was assigned, and and we were trained to recover his capsule if it landed in the jungles instead of the ocean. Oh, we were we were the standby team. We, we learned to smoke jump. You know, land in trees, repel. Uh, clear jungle, uh, you know, kill bad guy, whatever it took to make sure that our astronauts and the important components got home. So I was his team leader if he landed in the jungle. And I'm sitting there looking at him. And he, we, I mean, it was one of those moments when it's like he stopped breathing or he couldn't, he just couldn't imagine that he was meeting me, you know, because we never really met in person. Everything was, you know, paperwork, pictures. Right. It was pretty amazing. I sat there and talked to him a lot about being an astronaut. And he talked to me a lot about using a machete in the jungle and chasing bad guys. So it was pretty cool. <laughs> so, yeah, the you're working for Cal Fire or what, what you know, CDF. Um, and you're going through those, the, the training where did that where did that lead you next? Well, um, you know, the more it's one of those things that's you know it's like work expands to fill the space available. The more you train, if you're good at what you do and try hard, put your old you know heart and soul in it. The next thing you know, they got you doing something more. Um, 
anyway, I I became this intern. I moved around the state, seeing how Cal Fire worked, different places, uh, dispatching, uh, structure fires, hay bale fires, uh, car fires, wildland fires. And uh, I knew I was leaning more towards the wildland fire side rather than uh, structure fires and hay bales, stuff like that. Right. So I kept, I kept finding jobs that would take me closer to being a wildland firefighter. And that's where I ended up. Uh, went to, uh, in 1981, I went to Sacramento for an assignment. That's where headquarters is. And they, they were starting the prescribed burning program, chaparral management, uh, which was on track to save California from the mega wildfires we see today. Oh, guess what? You know, the environmentalists stopped that. We used to do a lot of control burns and prescribed burns and the wackos, excuse me, my friend, but the wackos, the radical environmental idiots that pushed the politicians to shut down things like prescribed burning uh, have ruined the state of California. But I started that program. I was part of the startup team for prescribed burning in the 80s. I mean, we did, we burned with, you know, these helicopters that dropped flame out of a torch hanging from a line. Uh, it's called a helitorch. Uh, we did wildlife burns to get rid of the brush and make more grass. It was really a fantastic time. But, uh, Eventually, when they saw how well I was doing with the prescribed, I made a movie even. <laughs> uh, it was part of my master's degree, prescribed burning for wildlife habitat. And that got me a door open to uh, go to my final resting place, which is uh, uh, Calaveras County, where I live now, uh, to be in this Tuolumne Calaveras Ranger unit. And uh, be the prescribed burn dude. So I did that for years. Then I promoted to more fire stuff and more fire stuff operations. And eventually they made me the chief. Uh, I spent my last uh, eight years as uh, the chief of the ranger unit, main guy in charge. Uh, had fires. Oh, my biggest fire had 4,000 people working for me. Uh, you know, 400 bulldozers. Uh, I forget how many fire engines, but let's just say a few thousand. Right. Just on one fire. So I spent, like I said, most of my career, you know, fighting wildland fires as as a chief officer. You know, and I, I had friends that did the structure fire side, kind of, and they didn't last long after they retired. They, uh, you breathe so much crap, and even in a wildland fire, um, if you're if you're not masked up or you know, because usually you're not in a wildland fire, uh, you you're just breathing stuff that you don't know what's in that smoke besides poison oak. Um, but a lot of these fires in in the rural California, in my day, you know, the meth labs and and the, and the pot and whatever. Uh, even furniture, you know, in some old trailer house out in the middle of the forest, you know, the furniture puts out poisons and toxins like you can't believe. So they, 
you know, you breathe a lot of that stuff. And the average, I think the average I read one time was eight to 10 years after retirement, most firemen die. Some right. kind of national, especially on the structure side. So. Yeah, from environmental exposures. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's how my uh, that's how my grandparents, my my two granddads went that way. But theirs was one worked in the the naval shipyard, um, Bethlehem Steel, there in San Francisco, and then uh, the other was worked with uh, shop towel, you know, and chemicals oh. and that kind of stuff at the beginning yeah. of that trade. So they they died late. I mean, they were very you know they they weren't young young men. It was due to the environmental um, exposure. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, and, and you know me, I, I fight the, the radical environmentalists a lot, but there were some things they did that were good for us. And, you know, had your grand, those people in your family had a little more protection, you know, they, who right. knows? Exactly. Same with uh, the firefighting side. Uh, we used to run into burning buildings and just grab somebody and bring them out. Well, now you better have your safety gear. You better have your tracker and your gloves, and you better have a mask and you know, breathing apparatus. But by God, it, it's you know, firefighters last longer now, right? <laughs> and they're safer. So I, 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 I'm selective on how I pick on some of the changes the environmentalists have made and the wackos and the, you know, I'm selective. Does that sound fair? No, it it does. It does. I'm I I joined. When I was in Scouts is when I joined the Sierra Club, and it was I believed in in you know our natural resource conservation and but but I never was an exclusionist, and I think that that's where things have gone is you know everybody you know the exclusionists think that because we like motorized recreation and we like to you know get outdoors with a vehicle that we're evil, so they want to exclude everybody except for, you know, those that leave footprints. Right. You know, they don't even really want horses, you know, or mountain bikes or any kind of transportation except for your own two feet. And, you know, they call themselves environmentalists, but what they truly are is exclusionists. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of them, um, you know, I, people who believe in something strong enough to die for it. Okay. I get it. You know, I'll die for my country and my right. parents, and my wife, and my, you know, I'll fight. I've been in meetings, rich. Um, was, how long has it been? 1994, October It's Halloween, the desert protection act of Southern California, you know, locked up like 8 million acres, one fell swoop of a bill. Um, Done. Wilderness, right? Locked it up. Nothing. Yep. Sat in a meeting with a little old lady, just the sweetest little old lady you could ever imagine. And they were talking about chainsaws and helicopters in the wilderness. What if we have an emergency and, you know, we need to, you know, chainsaw some trees down and land a helicopter and get somebody out? And this little old lady, and you can't do that. No, cha- no mechanized, no motorized, no chainsaws, no helicopters. She stood up. And said she would rather die out in the wilderness than have some helicopter come and get her. And I thought, wow, how do I fight that kind of an attitude? You know, it's like. Yeah, and everybody, everybody says that until they're in that situation. 
<laughs> <You're telling me. laughs> nobody, nobody wants to die. I assure you, I've been around plenty. Correct. And that last minute, I don't care who you are, what you've been doing. You know, you want mama to come home and hold you and you want to make it back. You know, it's, um, yeah, nobody wants to die. But she said that in a public meeting and I thought, holy cow, how am I? How on earth? I was, you know, really heavy into trying to work with the environmentalist, negotiate, compromise, find solutions, mutual benefit. But you can't fight that kind of. I mean, there's. Yeah, I'd rather die. Yeah, blew me away. But that eight million acres, that Desert Protection Act. What I was going to tell you about trails. Right. For me, you've heard Ricky and other people talk about my Death Valley stuff. I mean, that's my heart and soul for my favorite place to go. Okay. And yep. uh, I've lost 50%, one half of the trails I used to do. One half are gone. That'd be like cutting a Rubicon in half saying you can't do the rest of it. You know what I mean? It's like, what? Yeah. Mostly wilderness. And that's the big stopper right there yeah and uh i was in uh where was i i was in uh pennsylvania at a conference and i was giving a talk on land use i stood up and had a good audience interested people you know that they wanted to know more about the west and i said well you know we lost eight million acres in this one uh, uh congressional act and i'm I look around in my audience and I'm quacking away. You see me. I just start talking. I don't stop. <laughs> Everybody's glazed over. I mean, they're like sitting there like zombies, uh, mouth open. Uh. So I stopped. I said, I pointed at one guy. I said, what's the matter? What? what? He said, Dale, how big is 8 million acres? And I said, well, I said, oh. I guess it's the size of New Jersey, Connecticut, New Hampshire all put together or some such thing like that. They couldn't conceive. Their wheeling was 160 acres. That's what they had, private yeah. land. Yep. And they looked at me like I was, uh, 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 what? <laughs> it, it really gave me some perspective on, you know, you've been all over the, you know, you know, the East Coast, West Coast situation. Uh, they just don't have the public land and, they couldn't imagine a piece of land so big like that that we actually were wheeling on. I've had my parents in Death Valley, places that now, and they were in the back seat of my CJ7, within let's say a hundred yards of some great thing to see, and now I have to hike in, you know, three or four miles just to see the same thing I used to see, you know, a hundred yards away. Yeah, and you were actually on probably a mining road then. It wasn't yep. like you were out open wheeling. No, and it is a desert wash. You know, it Which changes every year. Yep. yep, it's silly. There's no damage there being done in a wash. I mean, for goodness sakes, it's just, oh, well, you know, I try and I have to remind myself not to be sour when I take somebody to Death Valley these days because, you know, I point up on this mountain and say, well, we used to go up there and see that or we used to go over there and see that. It's like, you know, people don't want to know what they can't see. Right. (laughs) So I'm careful about that, but there's still plenty to see. So I I will never stop going. Uh, I think 
38th year, I believe, you know, at least a week. So, yeah, love that place. I've done a bit in Death Valley, not not near as much as I would like to. We Shelly and I went down one winter um, over Christmas, and I realized right then that uh, our national parks are visited, I believe, more by non-residents than <laughs> well said. by by Amer- by Americans themselves, and I exactly, and I think that is really really sad that <laughs> that that's the yeah. case. Yeah, yeah, and most national parks, you know, you can't wheel. Death Valley is one of the exceptions, but most right. of the rest of them, you can't wheel, you can't hunt, you can't you can't put out a fire. You know, let's let Yellowstone burn. Uh, let's okay. let Yosemite burn. You know, it's just stupid. But Death Valley does have wheeling, and it's still there. Once you, uh, it's kind of cool too because Cal Four Wheel, the California Four Wheel Drive Association, is now holding an annual event in Death Valley itself. They do one in Panamint Valley, which is the next valley over. Right. But they started one in Death Valley. It's uh, going to be a couple of weeks before Moab. Uh, if there's any chance you could make it, it's a fun way to do it with a group like that because you got people along that know the trails and kind of know what's going on and where to go. And Interesting. Um, I've, had a, yeah. I've had the opportunity over the last couple of years working on the Rebel Rally with Emily Miller that her and Jimmy have set up, Jimmy Lewis have set up um, and gotten permission to run the rally through parts of Death Valley and through the national park, which to me was absolutely incredible that she, you know, just being able to get the land agencies to agree to permit an event like that is, you know, all the different agencies she has to go through and jurisdictions and counties and everything else. It's just incredible. But I've, there was stuff out there that I didn't realize, um, you know, that there were so many roads there that were still available. Yeah. Oh yeah. And to get her permit like that. I mean, I work with, uh, you know, modern Jeeper adventures now, Matson and Corey at metal quote. Um, I guide for them in death valley and uh well you know cory he's, he's a great guy but yeah. he he puts up with the paperwork chase to get a permit you know it's a commercial operation you get you know 10 jeeps whatever and you're going to go through the park and camp out in the desert it takes six to eight months to get that permit through the system the restrictions, the caveats, especially now during this COVID BS, uh, pretty, uh, it's almost, it's so daunting that it discourages you from even trying. But Corey does it, so we have to get permits. And Death Valley is still doable, and then they'll, they'll still work with you, but you got to kind of be, uh, you know, firm and strong. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and bulldog it about it. It's, I mean, it's why when I was running Vora, I stopped. Well, I stopped. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, with the desert racing, there was so much, you know, you you can't do it on a small footprint. And even though the permits were long going, because Ed Robinson had had them for so many years, they just started (laughs) making it 
more and more difficult to carry those on. And, you know, I, tr yeah. when I opened up moon rocks for rock crawling for doing events, you know, the, the hurdles and the, the amount of time it took to jump through those. And that's when I realized that I just, I couldn't deal with those government agencies like yeah. that. And we did in Farmington in 2009, I did an event down there, Chokecherry Canyon, you know, the, one of the yeah. first places that we ever had rock crawls, event, rock crawling events. And the office down there just with cost recovery, just annihilated me. <laughs> I, and I won't imagine. put it the way I normally put it, but it's, uh -huh. uh, <laughs> Shelly's looking at me, shaking her head. Nope. Don't say it. Don't say it. But you know, it, it's, uh, it, it really, it really upset me. I got the local clubs behind it. Um, and told them, you know, I'm never coming back. You know, I'm going to talk <laughs> crap on it, everything. And the office, everybody in the office changed. And then I got a call after, as I was leaving KOH one day and heading to Arizona or someplace. And the, the new recreational planner down in Farmington called me up and said, hey, we want to invite you back. And I went. Oh, really? <laughs> so I pull over on the side of the road and I was already, you know, at that point I was done with BLM. So I'd said in no uncertain terms that the only way I would do that is under these conditions. And I named the conditions and I was really blunt. I didn't know who this guy was. Um, I didn't care. I just knew that everywhere that I had tried to work with, it got harder and harder and harder to the point where I just said, you know what? I'm not going to do it. Like you said, they, they just made it so that it wasn't worth it. And, yeah. you know, not only emotionally and the work-wise, but financially with cost recovery, they treated, you know, a small event promoter like you were an oil industry, yep. you know, drilling for natural gas or oil. Um, or a big mining operation, you, you got treated the same way and charged the same dollars. And it's like, guys, we're talking a, a, an event that makes, you know, if you make a couple of grand at the end of the weekend, you know, that's awesome. But if you're asking, you know, 10 or 20 grand to, to, for us to do the event, how can that work? It doesn't work. No. I know. I watched Dave at the KOH and oh. the, cost, the cost that he has to put up with. And we started going and Stacey and I started going in 08. I think that was the second one or something. But anyway, you know, it's gone from a reasonable number of dollars, you know, to have a few cops to it, it just inordinate. I mean, it's crazy how much he's putting out to yep. cost recovery. And, and by the way, and I, you reminded me before we started our conversation, uh, this is our 20th anniversary of knowing each other, Rich. Yeah. It's November of 01, you said, when we did the, you know, put up or shut up shootout. There was, a, it was Lake Amador, wasn't yep, it? Yep, Lake Amador. Amador, yes. Yeah, I was media back then, photography, so you let me on the court. I got to take pictures and one of your first rock crawls with Cal Rocks back then. Yeah, it was the very first one. Yep. 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, you know, and you talk about, the permit process in my preachings and writings, I'm trying to keep clubs from turning into outlaws because they or turning the outlaws into legit. Just forget the permit. It's too much work. 
Yeah. We're going to go anyway. You know, and then they learned, well, well, don't post it on the social networks because so, they'll see you and they'll come out and get you. So then they started hiding their, you know, their link ups and just going anyway. And not, not, not a lot of clubs, but, you know, enough that it was visible. And uh, so I was working hard to help them, you know, hey, I'll help you with the paperwork. We'll find somebody to help you and we'll get through this permit process. And it's daunting, discouraging, and it shuts you down. And another example is our friend, you know, Jeff. Yep. Uh, Jeff Knoll. He tried to do that rally venture, did two of them. I was at both of them, lost both times. (laughs) (laughs) Paperwork and Bill M. Just shut him down. He just, enough, you know, it just wasn't worth it. Exactly. No, that's, yeah. and I, and I have to give credit where credit is due with Ultra 4, King of the Hammers, especially that event, to keep it going and growing like Dave has done is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, the amount of work that, goes into that permit every year and now that it's no longer out of the Barstow office but it's out of the the state office is I mean I just I yeah. I, I got to give him credit for that if for nothing else for for just bearing that burden <laughs> getting through the permit process the persistence it's and it's more than a full-time job Yes. And it's persistent. And I've, I've done permits uh, for modern Jeeper adventures up in Oregon, you know, state forestry. You wouldn't think that would be a big deal. It's not a political hotspot. Well, I mean, six months is a minimum. Minimum. Get that first piece of paper in. And even earlier is better. And I'm thinking it's a, you know, let's say a $50 permit and about two hours of paperwork. How on earth would it take six months? But, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we just did. We're back in Rangeley, Colorado. We did a an event there. We had done, I think it was two or three years in a row. We had used an area there at least two years, and and it was like five years, six years pr- prior to this last year. And we decided, hey, let's let's go back in there because with COVID, we couldn't you know go into certain spots, so we we had to find new locations you know, to keep the schedule. And they went through and had to do, even though we're using the exact same area that we had used five or six years ago, now they're going through the whole process again because nobody in that office was there, in the hierarchy of the office, was there during the other permit processes. Oh, my. So everything had to be done again. And my my conversation with them up front was, I don't even want to get started with this if it's going to involve cost recovery. Can you do this without cost recovery? And they were like, oh, yeah, we could do that. Well, I held them to it. They ended up putting a lot more years or hours into it, but it was all stuff that had already been done. Yeah. You know, the NEPA yeah. studies and the archaeological studies. It's an open OHV area. <laughs> and it's called the rock cra- rock crawling course. Yeah. And it's like, I, I can't. And then they didn't let us use the good rocks. It was ri- oh ridiculous. <laughs> well, you know, I try and 
uh, I've put on a lot of training courses, uh, recreational leadership training course and a volunteer leader land stewardship course. I think I have 300 students now that I put through it, including, including some of your interviewees like Kurt Snyder. <laughs> and Kevin Carey. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, a lot of people came out of that course you know, changed human beings, not just because of my good looks and, and charm. <laughs> it was interaction in the class. Right. You know, that first class uh, up at Ice House and what, by the Rubicon, you know, it had people that every every name in that class is now somebody, you know. <laughs> it was, uh, my mission was to get, you know, people enough knowledge and tools so they could deal with this bureaucracy keep our trail open, set the example, you know, lead by example and have some knowledge just enough to not let some flip-flop wearing cargo pants greenie for a federal employee tell them, no, we can't do that. Uh, I gave these people tools to get past that um, first obstacle, shall we say. Right. And that, that was that was my life when we started the Friends of Rubicon in two thousand and one. The same time you and I got hooked up, uh, and it went strong for about fifty. I was a trail boss for about ten years, and another five years we had other people leading it. And it basically we took the key to that trail away from the county, and you know this is our trail. We'll keep it open. Uh, we faced all kinds of closure threats and fines and, you know, lawsuits. And, and that was during the time when, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the DUI law was changed where it used to be <laughs> on, on pavement. But then, you know, if you're off-road and you're driving, you're, it's still a DUI, right? It's, you know, you can't have an open carry, yada, yada, or you know, open can. And, of course, there's always a few beer cans on the trail. I always stop and pick them up, like a lot of people, you know, yep. keep our trail clean, right? The greenies would hide in the bushes, like by Little Sloughs or by Ellis Creek. They'd hide, and uh, I don't know if they planted the beer cans or not, but they would try to get a picture of me picking up a beer can and putting it in red, my Jeep, which is, you know, that's like violation. Like you had just finished drinking. Yes, the yeah. picture would obviously make it look like I just finished it and put it in my Jeep. So, of course, then, you know, Cal for Wheel, Corva, a lot of the groups uh, started coming up, uh, Spider Web, they started coming up with these bags on the back. And that was legal. I could put the trash in that bag and, and not near, you know, the passenger compartment of my Jeep. But it got so bad that... Uh, I basically would, you know, pick it up with my picker-uppers or my gloves and put it in somebody else's trash bag. It never got near red. <laughs> they, were trying to, they were trying to discredit me and the Friends of the Rubicon. That sounds like one of those uh, Karen moves. Yeah, it definitely, that's, you hit it on the head right there. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and I find that so interesting now that they use that as a, as a and I know it's not based off of her, but that whole meme thing oh look at karen you know the one yelling and screaming in the window because you're running your truck or you're you know they don't like yeah. what you're doing and it's it was so fitting 
Yep. Oh, yep. Man. Yeah. And it shocked me at the extremes that they would go to to try to, you know, discredit a volunteer, you know, cause that was trying to do good, clean up the trail and pick up the poop. And you remember the days we were poop picker uppers. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I had, you know, boards of supervisors, uh, Jack Sweeney in the day. I mean, we were all out there picking up poop around Spider that one time frame, uh, 2003 or four, somewhere in there. And, you know, quarter ton military trailers full of it, full of it, several. Uh, one of our first cleanups trying to make sure the poop didn't get in the lake <laughs> went through all that and um well made when, the group strong when when all that first started i i looked at disco and i said hey you need you need to get up there because he was working for i don't know if it was eid or smud but he was testing he was water quality testing and yeah I, I said hey you need to go you know test all the waters up here right now so that we have you know that that da- that database so if they come in with their own testers that we have something you know yeah and he was like great idea you know they they still had some testing on a lot of those waters from way back as well so we had those those numbers um yep. to tell them that they were you know more full of shit than the trail was <laughs> Wasn't that when you were uh, helping me with uh, the, uh, what did we call it? The... Trail patrol? Yeah. yeah, trail patrol. Well, you, you asked you asked me to bring that over to Friends of the Rubicon, but that's not how that started. That <laughs> started, uh, you know, more of a vigilante group, you might say, um, <laughs> trying to correct some of the behaviors or educate people on the behaviors that were happening. Um, and I remember that one weekend I was up there and, and you were there and there was some firefighters out of the Bay area that were in Jeeps and they were not where they needed to be. And, and we had been told that. So you went over and I said, well, I'll take care of it. And you go, no, no, no. You know, I can talk these guys language and you went over there and you took care of it. And that was, uh, that was much appreciated, but you know, that, that education had to happen back then at that point, because, you know, we were, there was so much exposure on the Rubicon at that point. And with them closing, you know, the private property owner at Bassey closing that the falls down or the access to the falls, you know, it forced everybody you know that used to be the party spot and so it was a small area it was easy to clean up and people kind of kept it you know there was groups that went in there and cleaned it up but then when it got up on those same people started going up onto the rubicon you know thinking that they could treat it like they did bassy it was uh you know there needed to be an education and so that's why i started that yes made a difference and we were kind of our own worst enemy in a lot of ways and in some cases you know pirate <laughs> much as i love lance and lance started pirate and um it gave so many people that keyboard warrior kind of a you know hey look at me here's a video of me drinking my beer driving through little sloughs one-handed with my five-year-old kid sitting next to me it, aren't i cool <laughs> yeah, and that would end up on that pirate or the socials and uh, i'm thinking 
don't don't do this you know and it took a few years to kind of get that to go away right people to realize that that was not that's not what we yeah we didn't we didn't need to be showing that kind of behavior well i'd end up in a meeting and me and like my uh motorcycle man you said buddy don amador uh kevin kurt and all these guys that were helping We'd end up in some, you know, congressional testimony or a big meeting, and all of a sudden, here's this video, you know, of one of our own people doing something stupid, driving up a tree, winching up to the top limb. I mean, just crazy, illegal, and making videos of it, and it would end up in that meeting where I'm trying to convince politicians how great we are because we're volunteers. We're going to save the trail. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I sat in meetings where back east, uh, the ATV crowd was really getting strong, right? This is before the side-by-side crowd. Yeah. The ATV crowd, and all of a sudden, we're fighting with each other over grant money because the ATV people wanted it, the dirt bike people wanted it, and then jeeping people wanted it, and they couldn't agree, and they didn't like each other, so they fought in public meetings with a grant board ready to dish out, you know, a million bucks. Well, we're not going to dish out any today until you guys can all get your stuff together and quit arguing with each other and fighting. And there's still some of that today because there's ATV people when they hit the Rubicon, um, you know, not all of them followed the rules and stayed in the line. And much as we all hate lines, it was just too easy to get out of the line and buzz around through the brush and the bushes and off trail and, you know, take a shortcut. Yeah. It was killing us for a while. It, the education process in one of my articles, most read probably of, of, of all I've written, it's called the four E's, uh, uh, education, engineering, uh, engaging and enforcement is the four E's of enlightenment. I had to remember what it was called, but education is probably the biggest, you know, good signage and things like that. Engineering is how the trail is laid out and how the obstacles are laid out and bypasses so people don't get stuck. And it's a good trail system. Uh, engaging or enlisting is getting volunteers to ad- adopt it and use it and take care of it, be a part of it. And then last E was enforcement. When all else fails, you got to have cops out there. That's all there is to it. Right. I took a lot of heat when I brought, you know, like trail patrol and cops to the Rubicon. I got grant money to get cops out there. But there's just a point in time where, you know, education and common sense just is not working. So I got several people you know, hooked up and sent to federal court in Lake Tahoe. Doesn't sound like a terrible thing, but it's usually two or three days off work. Cause you're back and forth, back and forth, you know, $400 fine. Yada, yada. I mean, and it's, it's, a, it's pain in the butt, but most of them learn their lesson after, you know, <laughs> one bust. Yeah. I remember we were, we were doing the, a law enforcement tour or, government agency yes. tour and you know you called out for volunteers to take people in and out and we were we were all standing there at at uh, the gatekeeper at Loon Lake side of the trail 
and that vehicle, I'm not going to throw the guy under the bus with the name or the what the vehicle exactly looked like, but it was a homemade vehicle that uh, had a unique body, and he came down from the dam area, down the hillside, through the brush, like showing off that he could do this in front of, well, there was... There was a federal judge there. There was there was there was all sorts of law enforcement from every agency in, you know, whether it was Highway Patrol, you know, anybody that had any jurisdiction up in the mountains, and you know, Forest Service and and there was twenty, thirty of us standing there, and that guy drove in, and yeah. the joke was, well, you know, we have the judge, we have prosecutors. We have defense attorneys and we have enough people to put together a jury. Um, you know, what's the verdict? You know, I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that guy, the guy thought he was so cool until he realized who he drove up on. <laughs> yeah. Bad was, timing. <laughs> there was so much learning curve back then. Um, you know, and, and folks, you and me and several of the leaders I had in the, and friends of the Rubicon, you know, we took our share of heat, you know, because the good old boys didn't want cops on the trail and they didn't want to change and they didn't want more people showing up. And, you know, but had we not done those things, that trail would be closed tighter than a tick right now, other than public, other than the landowners having access. True. Yep. It would be, that's one of the sacrifices I make. You know, I, I will all around the country and I go places where, man, this is nice. I'm not going to tell anybody and keep this quiet. And it's like a good fishing hole, right? Yep. It didn't take me long to figure out if I didn't have an army behind me that had been there and done that and seen it, it's hard to get them to step up and help you save it. True. So I give up my good places and my secrets in death valley and the sweetwater mountains on 395 i show people and take them there and say now when the time comes i have your name and number you're going to help me save this someday oh yeah no problem dale well i'm going to hold you to it so yeah it's like the first guys that knew about moon rocks yep. you know tried to keep it quiet for a long time but when he gets in trouble you need an army. True. Yeah. So what's the what's the hot topic right now? Well, we've been through several. Uh, in California, it's still, you know, places like some of the the riding areas for the dirt bikers. Uh, that's, you know, asbestos at Clear Creek and, you know, development around some of the state recreation areas. That's always going to be an issue that the greenies will keep bringing up. Um, honestly, it seems like most of the interest in land use, the stuff that I do and Kurt, you know, it's sort of, it has fizzled literally when, uh, president Trump took over, you know, it looked like everything was going to get fixed, whether we wanted it to or not, it was going good. And, you know, some of the idiot rules were being erased and then COVID hit. And uh, this, the land use side of the world has just kind of gone quiet. So the issues don't seem to surface like they, they were. 
wilderness areas are still out there. Um, you know, people are more focused in, from what I've seen on things like, you know, kids' rights in school and masks and, <laughs> and shots and uh, totally distracted from keeping our trails open. True. It's like it's not even an issue. I mean, it's an issue, but they're not interested. Right. So it's a full-time job trying to keep people motivated to, you know, stay in the game. Overlanding has taken over. You know, people that have great big rock crawling buggies are ending up buying these uh, less than a rock crawler with a rooftop tent and some gas can on the back. And, you know, it used to be called car camping. They're going overlanding. Yeah, we, we went from extreme wheeling, rock crawling, to extreme camping. Yeah, exactly. And I can spend as much money on extreme camping as I can setting up a buggy. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then you get to show it off, you know, when you go to the, oh, yeah. the KOH campground on the way, you know, you, you <laughs> set up your, your Scottle, you know, nothing against these products. But I mean, you know, your your rooftop tent with uh, with four annex rooms and, you know, a, uh-huh. a 270 degree shade, you know, and, yeah. and your your three hundred and fifty dollars or five hundred dollars stove instead of the old two burner Coleman, you could have this <laughs> white gas know. pump. Yeah, <laughs> now yeah. everything's solar operated. You know, I I'm surprised oh, yeah. we haven't seen solar operated like microwaves or something. You know, I mean everybody, oh, that, uh, I don't know. it's getting crazy. <laughs> well, and Ford Ford just came out this year with that F one fifty with a built in generator in it. For goodness sakes, exactly. So, 7kw if you want if you want the big one that'll you know that's you could run the whole compound <laughs> i was with a guy in uh death valley this one of the modern jeeper trips he and his wife beautiful jk just a beautiful jeep and literally when you open the back tailgate you know pop that window and look in the back he had a command center console all these big inverters, converters, generate this, that, and buttons and plugins and the USBs. I mean, it was, I was impressed. And I guess he did most of the work himself. And it, and it took weeks, weeks to wire, rig, and set up this command console on the back of his overlanding Jeep. It was amazing. I saw that kind of stuff at SEMA this year. Some of the companies out there are, you know, we're, we're getting more and more solar. It's getting more and more efficient and it's amazing what people are doing. I mean, little micro AC units that, you know, are running off of, you don't even have to have a generator to run them, just inverters and solar panels. And, and you have the AC for your tent. I mean, it's, you might as well just stay at home and. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and watch TV instead of going out in the woods and watching TV. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't get it. <laughs> I enjoy it, though. The overlanding, you know, even though you're setting up camp every night, taking it down every morning, you know, putting it up, putting it down, up and down, up and down. It's it's still it's still fun for about a week. And then, I, you know, last year I spent 19 days in Death Valley doing that. 19 days in a row. And by the time I got home, <laughs> my butt was tired. <laughs> and I didn't want to set up anything. I just wanted to sit in my easy chair and 
flush the tube. <laughs> Makes sense. I get it. We do yeah. we do a lot after the rock crawling season is over, and then we right away we do the rebel rally, and we go move into our adventure trailer that we pull with our pickup truck, and we do that. We're you know the the adventure trailer has the rooftop tent on it. I like to be able to unhitch and then go explore, come back and sleep, not have to yes. tear down and set up every day. But you know Me if too. you have to, it's easy enough because it's on a trailer right behind you. But it's yep. uh, we stay in that until we get you know until we after SEMA and we're ready to you know now head to the Gulf Coast. So. Right on. You know, we we do, well, we probably do close, a couple of years, we've done 30, 40 days. Like last year, we did, uh, we did it a, a, from a, after the Rebel, we, and SEMA, then we went from Apache Junction, outside of Phoenix, all the way to, well, just about, I'd say Las Cruces, all off-road, with maybe twenty miles of pavement. Wow! And it was awesome. I, I I dig it. That's like when Chris Collard and I went from Mexico to Canada, all dirt roads. Yep. That was ten years ago. Jeez. But yeah, overlanding. It's it is fun. I I admit it. Extreme yeah. car camping. Yep. Yep. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it. Overlanders don't get upset. I'm not bagging on you. You're not all Olaf. It's okay. You won't. Now, you know my Jeep. You know Red pretty well. You're not going to get mad at me if I uh, put the snorkel back on, get an angry grill and a bigger light bar. Nope, it's your Jeep. You can do anything you want on it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have to say anything. Everybody else will. (laughs) Red started out with a snorkel. I had a snorkel on him back 20 some odd years ago. Well, on Ford, ice, on Ford Ice, you know, the river crossings, that's a good idea. <laughs> well, that's the only place I can think of it. <laughs> but I put it on, the folks convinced me on Pirate that it would help with with uh, air injection. You know, turn the snorkel so it's facing the wind and push some wind in and, you know, increase your fuel and yada, yada, give you a little more power. Oh, I believed it. <laughs> <laughs> like you needed I more would. power in that thing. Well, yeah. But poor Red's getting, he's 180,000 miles now. He's on his second engine. Still going strong, though. So the only time years. it the only time it laid on its side was that was when Stacy was driving? Yes, sir. That's a fact. I, I was there. Uncle, <laughs> Uncle Dell has never rolled or flipped a vehicle. Well, I can't and, say that. I've done that a number no, of times. No. Well, I don't. I don't rock crawl professionally either. That would be a different story. But from trail riding, yeah, we were at pirate camp in uh, Pirates of the Rubicon. And, well, there might have been a little partying going on the night before, but um, she wanted to drive out. They made us honorary pirates, so there must have been a lot of uh, partying going on. But we, she wanted to drive out. We got to Walker Hill, you know, coming out. And... uh that one, you know how it used to be pretty rutted out. Yes. Just a bank. I mean, it was really rutted that year. <laughs> we were coming out, and uh, she started getting too far on that uphill bank. Old Red was coming up on her side, coming up, coming up. I said, and I'm passengered up because I, I think I had a small headache. 
And, uh, <laughs> so I'm passengered up. We're all seat belted in. Pretty soon, I said, "Honey, you better you better get over." We weren't married then; we we're just dating. She says, "I'm coming over," and sure enough, here comes the jeep on my side. Bang! Landed on the my door. Now, here's the funny part. I you know the story, <laughs> but um, I could smell gas. Now you know I could smell it when we hit. There was a whiff of gas, and I heard gas pouring out. I could hear it. You know that this liquid pouring out on the ground. I heard this sound. I smelled the gas, and I said to Stace, "I said, get out. It's gonna blow." Well, Stacy and I carry one-handed knives. You know where you can pull it out of your pocket, flip it open with your thumb, right? So you can get out of a seatbelt in a bad situation. I've never had to do it, but guess what? Her seatbelt cut loose, mine wouldn't. So she's standing on the window of the driver's door, pulling on me, trying to get me out of the Jeep while we think this thing's going to blow up. She's pulling on me. Of course, I made the seatbelt worse, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I pull out my one-handed knife thinking, oh, thank God, you know, get ready to cut the seatbelt, let go. So she helps me out. We get over to the side. We're holding each other. We're looking at the Jeep. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, it's on the passenger side. The gas tank is on the driver's side uphill. It can't be pouring out. Well, short of the story is maybe I got a whiff of gas. Maybe I, I don't know. But the water pouring out was the water coming out of the ice chest. Still <laughs> tight to the feet. So, so, you know, big sigh of relief. And, you know, you got people came back and helped us upright it. And we drove it home. But. Uh, that was 2004. How was it back then? Wow. Uh, uh, wait a minute. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah, I it guess was about it was. It was 2004 because we got married in 2005. Oh. You still married me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, dear. <laughs> and that's what I was going to say. Even, you know, she's trying to save me. She wouldn't leave me. I married that woman. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's a fact. That's anyway, awesome. <laughs> yeah, I love that Jeep of mine. In fact, it's in the shop right now. I, I got to admit, Rich, you know, I let's just say I'm a little older than you. And, uh, you know, like 19 days in Death Valley, I get in and out of the Jeep 100 times a day, you know, showing people rocks, showing people plants, talking about something, in and out. And, you know, Red's six inches up. I mean, you know, he's lifted. He's got parts and pieces. Yeah, I still can do it. But after a hundred times. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm kind of like, where is my nap? Where's my cot? Anyway, I'm uh, working with, I'm trying to get some, uh, like those rock slide engineering slider steps. <laughs> right. <laughs> Where the power step comes down when you open the door <laughs> very nice yes I, well yeah it's, it's time it is i still want to use red but you know, i don't need to be jumping in and out like that all day I mean, when i was a paratrooper i kind of banged up my back you know jumping out of planes with scuba tanks and guns and equipment uh i, I banged up my back pretty good so a little assist step is going to be nice sounds like it'll be very nice Yes, I can't wait. <laughs> so uh anything uh 
Anything new and exciting for for the two of you? We know we are going to be so happy when this world gets back to some semblance of what it used to be. We're going to start out 2022. Um, <laughs> right off the bat, I'll be doing an overlanding thing in Arizona. And, of course, we'll do a little convention stuff with California Four-Wheel Drive Association. We're going to do – I'll do some more modern Jeeper in spring with uh, Death Valley. And then we'll go to Moab and see people we haven't seen in two years. Yes. Uh, yeah, get back on the Rubicon in the summer. I always convince people or try to that, you know, just wait till that snow and mud are gone. Enjoy the trail and, you know, the summertime. Right. So I'll be doing some of that. Yeah, it's going to be a, I'm, I'm hoping it's a, a normal, busy spring because I'm tired of this crap we've been putting up with. And I hope you're okay with me saying crap. Oh, yeah. The, there's no... There's no voca- vocabulary that is not okay on my podcast. <laughs> gotcha. gotcha. Hey, listen gotcha, to my, listen to my sons. My lord, he's got a dirty mouth. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not around. I don't, yeah, I hear you. So no, anyway, uh, yep. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, Rich. It's uh, I haven't shared my story like quite in its depth. I don't think ever. So. Well, that's good. That's what I try to get out of people. You know, everybody goes, well, I don't have, some people say, I don't have a story to tell. We know Dell has a story to tell. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> it's, it's, it's almost as long as the Bible, right? It goes from <laughs> the it, beginning of time. <laughs> considering I'm as old as Death Valley. Yeah. <laughs> uh, smarty pants. Yeah. That's me. Uh-huh. Anyway, anyway, um, Del, thank you so much for coming on board and uh, sharing your history. And uh, Stacy, thank you for being back there holding up the notes for him. (laughs) (laughs) She's getting me some coffee, but thank you, Rich. I I thoroughly enjoyed it, partner. All right. And uh, you take care, and uh, we'll talk again here shortly. Right on, brother. Okay. Okay. Um, Bye-bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.